Welcome uh, to the LSE. So I'm uh, Wouter Den Haan. I'm a professor here at the LSE, and I'm uh, the co-director of the Center for Macroeconomics, which is uh, hosting this evening's uh, event. So before I introduce this evening's speaker, I would like to make uh, a couple announcements. So please put your mobile phone on silence. Uh, the talk is going to be roughly 25 minutes, and then after that you have a chance to... Uh, uh, question our speaker. Uh, the plan is to record this event, uh, so if technology works, then uh, it should be available on our website and on the LSE website. So now it's my pleasure to introduce this evening's speaker, Richard Sharp. He is a member of the Financial Policy Committee of the Bank of England, a committee that was created in the wake of the crisis uh, to deal with uh, financial stability. Our speaker has an impressive background in the financial sector, working in a variety of fields, for some of the most prestigious firms. And you probably were not surprised when I just told you that. But he's also an avid fan of the arts, and in particular classical music. Uh, and in fact, he was chairman of the Royal Academy, but I suspect you're not going to talk about that this evening. Mm -hmm. So join me in welcoming our speaker for this evening. Well, I don't know if any of you um, have appeared in front of uh, Treasury Select Committee, um, but it's a, it's a slightly unnerving experience. And the, when they last published the Financial Stability Review, I found myself going along to the Treasury Select Committee. And I was sitting there, and you sit there in the front, and then all the MPs arranged around you. And, um, and I was somewhat apprehensive about what was going to be directed in, in, uh, towards me in terms of the questions coming from the MPs. Uh, but fortunately, I was um, sitting next to the governor. And uh, sitting next to the governor meant that the questions, all the questions from the MPs, they were very concerned about a number of things, were being directed at him. And, I, and I'm sure you've all seen him. He's, he's a bit like Roger Federer. So the balls were coming towards him, and he was gracefully just knocking them back you know, one came over and he smashed it into the corner, another one hit it down the line. And I, I started to forget that I was actually part of the panel and regarded myself as, um, if anything, um, really having the opportunity to have what they call courtside seats in, um, in American basketball. And I actually forgot that I was on the panel. And at one point, uh, having enjoyed this, I was startled when the chairman said, Mr. Sharp. And... Um, so I looked at him, and he said, um, you know, when are we going to hear from you? Or words to that effect. And um, not being a politician, I was sort of come up in the traditions of actually answering a question when it's been asked. And um, I had actually, at that, up to that point, formed the view that I deliberately shouldn't be heard of, that um, the best, it's best on issues of macroprudential uh, concern for confidence in the economy that the governor be the only spokesman for the Bank of England. So um, I actually answered the question with, with, with what I felt. And I said, well, um, I don't plan to talk. Um, and then to compound my error, I said, and that's actually a deliberate strategy. <laughs> so um, <laughs> uh, the, there was, I could see visible consternation as these MPs, of course, to whom public speaking is very much part of their lives. So I was absolutely shocked at this idea that this wasn't the right thing to do. And um, so I reflected on it a moment, and the, we had an interchange between myself and the uh, chairman. And um, 
after after that, I sort of reflected on his view, and the, the, in a sense, that's why I'm here today, which is that this is one of the most powerful committees um, affecting people's lives in the United Kingdom with representatives who aren't elected. And so I, I actually understand his point of view, because I know that I'm an independent, external, rational person. But until people hear me speak or have the chance to interrogate me, they have no way of knowing that is, in fact, the case. And therefore, um, therefore, I agreed that I should give a talk, and therefore I'm grateful um, to the um, Center for Macroeconomics and for the LSE for giving me this opportunity. And in, in, in context of that, I should say that these remarks are very much my own and aren't necessarily those um, of, my bank, of my Bank of England colleagues. Now, now, my role within the structure of the Financial Policy Committee is that of an external member. And um, I'm one of four such external members who are expected to bring independent as well as an, uh, an external perspective to the deliberations that take place at the FPC. And in that role, I seek to use the experience I've had in financial services to allow the FPC to fulfill its primary task, which is that of maintaining financial stability in the UK. And tonight, uh, what I hope to do is quickly touch on some of the background issues concerning the macroprudential policy and the creation of the FPC, but also the FPC powers and objectives. And I'll share with you some of the challenges we face in seeking to fulfill our mandate. Crises of any nature um, cause people to reconsider their beliefs and actions and policies. And looking back through history, we, we find that it's common for major financial crises to be followed by innovations or changes in regulation. For example, there was a wave of regulations, including the creation of Glass-Steagall and deposit insurance in the U.S. in response to the Great Depression. And the initial Basel Committee on Banking Supervision was created in 74 in response to failures of uh, the Herstadt and the Franklin Bank of New York. Now, the recent financial crisis has had a profound effect on people and economies across the globe. And, of course, it has caused governments and regulators to rethink and redesign much of the global regulatory framework, including capital, liquidity, leverage requirements through Basel III. Uh, there are structural reforms of banking groups, for example, the Independent Commission on Banking in the UK and the Volcker Rule in the United States, market reforms, for example, on over-the-counter derivatives, and also uh, efforts to address the regulation of shadow banks. Now, critically, it's now understood that the effective macroprudential policy sits very much at the heart of interconnected policies, which all touch on financial stability. And moreover, that financial stability is of absolute importance and actually needs to take account of this interconnectedness in its design and implementation. Hence, the create, creation of an appropriate structural response with a single entity of charge with financial stability in the UK, which is in, indeed the Financial Policy Committee. Now, before the uh, crisis, the UK system of ensuring financial stability was vested in a now infamous tripartite system. That's, I don't know if these slides... There we go. Okay. I wonder if you can tackle with the slides right now and talk. Um, oh, it's this button, is it? Oh, oh I see. That was a dummy just to deceive me. Very clever. Okay. Okay. There we go. Okay. Um, uh, the, now, this tripartite system involved the, um, the FSA 
conducting micro-prudential and contact supervision of over 25,000 financial institutions. The separate Bank of England was responsible for monetary stability, uh, regulating payment systems and providing liquidity to the financial system, and the Treasury oversaw the institutional structures and ultimately footed much of the bill associated with resolving problems in failing banks. Uh, to manage the intersection of those responsibilities, in 1997, a Memorandum of Understanding was signed, which was subsequently updated in 2006, between the Treasury and the Bank of England and the Financial Services Authority. It said, the Parliament, the markets, and the public must know the responsibilities of each authority. There should be no overlap between those authorities, and that each authority must be accountable for their responsibilities. And each authority sat on a standing committee, which met monthly to discuss financial stability issues, which was supposed to encourage meaningful coordination. The agreement seemed clear and had all the right words, but it just didn't work. When they set up this tripartite system, they focused far too much on structure, not enough where they were really aiming, and not enough on the matters which were necessary for effective outcomes. Now, you've had many great speakers here over time, um, but one you haven't had is one of my favorite philosophers and baseball legend, Yogi Berra. And he said, if you don't know where you're going, you may end up somewhere else, which is precisely where they ended. And in 2011, the government said in reviewing this, that the decision to divide responsibility for assessing systemic financial risks between the three institutions meant that in reality, no one took responsibility. It was generally agreed that the FSA was insufficiently focused on systemically important institutions and failed to manage against correlated risks across the system. The Bank of England was responsible for the broad overview, but it could and certainly should have done more to elevate awareness of the risks and the lack of resilience in the financial system and to press for action to be taken. And the Treasury had been content with the light-touch regulation, which had done so much to contribute to the apparent successful development of the city and its financial institutions. It was blissfully ignorant of the failure of the FSA to ensure that the light-touch regulation was effective. The architecture is now vastly different. Roles and responsibilities are more clearly defined, and accountability is clearly allocated. The most visible change was to split the FSA into the Prudential Regulatory Authority, which is a part of the Bank of England and is responsible for micro-prudential regulation of banks, insurers, and large investment firms. And the FCA, which is responsible for conduct regulation of all regulated financial institutions and the micro-prudential regulation of smaller regulated financial institutions not covered by the PRA. In this way, it is expected that the extensive consumer protection activities will not diminish resources or focus that's expended on effective microprudential regulation necessary for the key financial institutions. But a more subtle and, I'd argue, equally important change was to give responsibility for macroprudential policy to the Bank of England and, in particular, to the FPC. There are 11 members of the FPC, um, and you may see me there in the back in the blue tie, along with all the other people in the blue tie. The, um, the committee is populated to ensure the best possible coordination between the Bank of England, the PRA, the MPC, and the FCA. Uh, the FPC has five Bank of England staff members, the Governor, who chairs the FPC, as well as the PRA Board and the Monetary Policy Committee, the MPC, three Deputy Governors, and the Executive Director for Financial Stability. And one of the Deputy Governors is the Chief Executive of the PRA. In addition, we, uh, it includes the Chief Executive of the FCA, and there's one non-voting member from the Treasury. 
And then there are four of us as independent external members. Don Cohn, the former vice chairman of the U.S. Fed and an expert in central banking standards and global capital flows. Clara Furs, who is the former chief executive of the London Stock Exchange. Martin Taylor, who had been a former chief executive of Barclays and myself. And the importance, particularly of the external members, is to bring a range of knowledge and insights to the FPC which should guard against something that people are most concerned about in the past, which is uh, groupthink. And in that sense, we have to bring an independent uh, uh, perspective to bear. Now, the statutory objectives of the FPC are twofold. First, to contribute to the achievement of the Bank of England's financial stability objective. And second, subject to that, to support the economic policy of Her Majesty's government, including its objectives for growth and employment. The FPC has powers, considerable powers, to give directions to the PRA and the FCA in relation to the use of certain specified macroprudential instruments, which are currently the sectoral capital requirements and countercyclical capital buffer. It can make recommendations to anybody, including the PRA and the FCA, on a comply or explain basis. And it is able to make recommendations to HM Treasury, including on the boundaries within and around the perimeter of the PRA and the FCA regulatory regimes. The FPC's tools will form the first line of defense against financial stability risks. That's what they're there for. This includes financial stability risks that may be indirectly created by the actions of other committees, as the MPC itself recognized in its use of forward guidance. And when using its tools, the FPC aims to take graduated and proportionate action where possible. The committee has stressed this approach recently, for example, when considering the risks stemming from the housing market. And the set of tools that it can deploy to manage these risks are ones it will do so carefully and gradually as they emerge. In addition to risks like those in the housing market, which vary over the course of the business cycle or credit cycle, the FPC is also responsible for addressing risks that emanate from the structure of financial institutions, financial markets, or the financial system as a whole. And as these structural risks are broad and varied, the committee has decided to focus over the next 12 to 18 months on three key medium-term priorities – Establishing the medium-term capital framework for banks, ending the problem of too big to fail, and ensuring diverse and resilient resource sources of market-based finance. Work in these areas will involve extensive interaction with authorities internationally, which will certainly affect the time frame of how things can be implemented, as well as interactions domestically with the PRA, the FCA, and the Treasury. Now, The conduct of macroprudential policy is obviously vitally important, but it's also unfortunately particularly challenging, not just for the FPC, uh, but for macroprudential authorities and academics throughout the world. And this is for a number of reasons, including that there are challenges in identifying the build-up of systemic risks, including the building up of time-varying risks and cross-sectional risks. There's a current lack of definitive empirical evidence on the impact of many of the tools available to the macroprudential bodies. There's a need to balance objectives, for example, financial stability versus economic growth. Although in the UK, as I've, you can see from this, the law is explicit that the FPC's primary objective is to contribute to financial stability, and subject to that, it should support the government's economic policy. Further, we don't really know how time-varying tools, for example, the counter-cyclical capital buffers, should be set during a downturn, given the possible trade-off between the balance sheet resilience of the financial system and credit supply which is extraordinarily difficult um, and and at a time when um, balancing objectives is likely to be most acute. Further, there are challenges in understanding the potentially imprecise interaction between macroprudential monetary and microprudential policy. 
and the potential for unintended consequences when communicating policies to the public and the financial industry, for example, if the, if the anticipation of the action by the FPC stimulates market participants to change their behavior in an unhelpful way. So uncertainty is a common theme behind each of these challenges. And I'll focus on some of the types of uncertainty that create challenges for macroprudential policymakers when deciding to act. There's currently no clear international consensus on the objectives of macroprudential policy with great precision. And whilst the overall objective of reducing systemic risks in the financial system is clear, what isn't clear is the extent to which this should be balanced against a broader macroeconomic growth objective. One area of significant debate is on whether macroprudential policy should act to mitigate the growth of asset bubbles. If the bubble is funded by bank debt, I think the answer is likely to be yes. But it is unfortunately less clear-cut if the links between the bubble and the financial stability are less obvious. We should always remember that it's easy to see bubbles in hindsight, but it isn't always as easy to see them when they're developing. And certainly my experience has led me to be all too well aware that to seek to forecast future market directions or developments is invariably an extremely hazardous exercise. It is worth reminding ourselves that by some measures, somewhere between 75% and 98% of the world's finest minds in finance consistently underperform passive market indices, even though they are well-informed, experienced, and supposed experts. Hence, a central belief of mine that I bring to the FPC is that macroprudential regulation and policymaking should always prioritize protecting the robustness and resilience of the financial system and not act on the expectation that significant systemic risk can always be appropriately anticipated anticipated and thereby securely, securely avoided. Indeed, the history of central banking across the globe demonstrates a consistent failure to anticipate or mitigate significant shocks. For example, when I went into banking, the system had just been recovering from the Latin American sovereign crisis. Subsequently, there was the U.S. savings and loan crisis. We had the tech bubble of the 90s and, devastatingly, the real estate bubble of the last decade. None of these risks were appropriately anticipated by central banks in a way that managed to prevent or mitigate severe shocks to stability. The risks associated with seeking to be effective in this era are highlighted not just by the fact of the crash, but also by the perspectives of some of the most intelligent operators in this area before the crash took place. In a notable speech delivered a few years before the recent crisis, Ben Bernanke said, that, quote, one of the most striking features in the economic landscape of the past 20 years or so has been a substantial decline of macroeconomic volatility. He was so confident that substantial volatility had been eliminated that the speech was not focused on whether this issue was true, but instead on focusing why volatility had declined. The implicit message was that severe volatility had been eliminated. Indeed, this period, which we discussed earlier, was actually described at the time as the Great Moderation. Bernanke had identified three types of explanation. First, structural change had taken place, such that changes in economic institutions, technology, business practices, or other structural features of the economy had improved to such an extent that there was a greater capacity for the economy to absorb shocks, greater resilience in effect. This view, by the way, was a widely held consensus. Unfortunately, not only was it wrong, it was precisely wrong. In fact, correlated risk-taking and structural changes had taken place, which led to the amplification and not the absorption of shocks. The second class of explanation for the great moderation focused on the benign effects of macroeconomic policy, and in particular monetary policy. We now know that although monetary policy had benign effects on inflation, 
There were devastating effects on the accumulation of leverage in financial institutions and the wider economy and on asset inflation. His third explanation was good luck, i.e. that the world had experienced smaller and more infrequent shocks. My point in reminding us of this perspective from Ben Bernanke is not to single him out, but more to remind ourselves that at any given point in time, the most intelligent central bankers in the world can be wrong. Indeed, the forecasting ability of the Bank of England itself has been under scrutiny. A review of the MPC's forecasting ability conducted by David Stockton in 2012 at the request of the court showed that the MPC's central forecasts for annual GDP growth one year ahead were consistently above actual GDP growth for much of the period since the crisis began. And as Yogi Berra said, making predictions is difficult, especially about the future. So when it comes to evaluating the FPC, please don't expect this to be an omniscient committee, which by their collective capabilities can always successfully anticipate shocks. Whilst we will do our best to anticipate shocks and minimize the possibility of them arising, it is better that the FPC should be viewed as unequivocally accountable for ensuring that when such shocks do occur, and indeed they will, the system has built up sufficient strength and resilience so that such events can be effectively managed. So if predicting crisis is difficult and one can't rely on academics or central bankers to develop any predictive models, I do believe, however, that macroprudential authorities can take important actions before significant threats build up. So what they need, they need frameworks and processes that enable these macroprudential authorities to identify emerging signs or threats or lack of resilience in the financial system so they can act on an early enough stage to address the risks especially given the implementation periods for some of the policy actions. A particular challenge in this sense is fat tail risk. We're ensuring against an unlikely event, which could be catastrophic happening, may have more visible, tangible, short-term costs. There's a growing body of research in this area. Um, For instance, research suggests that the the difference between the credit-to-GDP ratio and the long-run trend which is known as the creditor-GDP gap, is a good signal of the build-up of potential time-varying risk to financial stability. And this is something, I think, which is now generally understood in relation to the crash. And certainly on an intuitive level, this makes sense. If you believe that there's a possibility and the probability that the financial sector can provide credit risk to increasingly risky borrowers and at a time that the further the, the, the credit exceeds its historic trends. And indeed, uh, I think in the House of Debt by Main and Sufi, which has been recently published, the accumulation of debt across the system is now getting the right attention. Despite this, the credit-to-GDP gap isn't a perfect indicator, and no such indicator or even a set of indicators is likely to exist. And when it sets the counter-cyclical capital buffer, which is one of the FPC's main tools to address time-varying risks, the FPC considers a number of indicators – These core indicators are published on the Bank of England's website. And the FPC also considers other sources of information, including supervisory and market intelligence. But it would be wrong for the FPC to set its tools mechanistically purely on the basis of models or indicators, because we have to deal with uncertainty, which isn't always captured by models. Further, data can be imprecise or missing. For example, it's fair to say that the structure of the financial system isn't fully understood due to data gaps, And we don't understand, for example, always correlations between firms' assets. We don't understand uh, all the financial interlinkages more generally, particularly if one takes account of derivatives. 
And it's possible that these challenges are particularly acute for the FPC given the macroeconomic and financial environment in the UK. Each nation has idiosyncratic sources of risk. In the UK now, we alert to the risks represented by the acceleration of asset prices, and particularly property, where there's been a lot of focus. And these, in part, obviously arise from the low-interest rate environment. But in addition, we have a worrying level of national debt to GDP, which is below but flirting with a tipping point, and notwithstanding the mathematical controversy, in my view correctly suggested by Roghoff and Reinhardt, whereby for certain countries, excessive national debt can compress economic growth. In addition to idiosyncratic national risks, we have to be mindful of risks emanating from the spillover effects from other markets. We saw last year, for example, the tremor to credit markets arising from the risk of U.S. tapering. We have potential risks in the financial systems in China and Japan to contemplate. And we have to assess continuing risks, which could well emerge from sovereign indebtedness in Europe. And although the U.K. is a geographical island, or more correctly, Britain is a geographical island, it isn't a financial one. It is highly open in terms of trade, and the sum of nominal exports and imports and goods and services exceeds 60% of GDP. To put that in perspective, the figure is a little over 30% to the U.S. and Japan. This means that foreign developments can transmit strongly to the U.K. through trade linkages. And the U.K.'s financial openness is even more striking, with the sum of the U.K.'s external assets and liabilities exceeding 14 times nominal GDP. For many advanced economists, this fig- figure economies this figure is less than five times nominal GDP. So the UK's financial linkages are also a key channel by which foreign developments can affect the domestic economy. The correlation between annual UK GDP growth and PPP, purchasing power parity-weighted world GDP growth since 1988, is around 0.6, confirming that UK activity displays a high amount of co-movement with wider global activity. And using several models previously used in a speech by Ben Broadband of the CFM, so-called world shocks can account for around two-thirds of the weaknesses in the level of the UK GDP relative to pre-crisis trend since 2007. Hence, we also need to be realistic that the FPC has to take account of unpredictable external events, which it is not in a position to manage, but which may have a profound effect on UK financial stability. The FPC's powers are considerable, However, we must acknowledge the uncertainty about the effectiveness of the tools available to macroprudential policymakers and the possibility of unintended consequences arising from their application. Moreover, models which describe the transmission channels through which tools operate are unfortunately imprecise due to the complexity of the structure of the financial system, as I've described, particularly now given the swathe of regulatory reforms and the magnitude of the channels that exist. And as the FPC and its tools are relatively new, After all, it's only been in existence for a year. We will need to be careful to assess the effectiveness of our actions. This will be done publicly, as the FPC is legally required to conduct cost-benefit analysis where where practicable when deciding to take policy action. At times, uh, the choice of the instruments that we may need to consider may be particularly challenging, and there are a broad array available to us. It's possible that multiple tools can address the same risks in very different ways. For example, cyclical risks developing the banking system could potentially be addressed by the use of system-wide or targeted capital requirements, liquidity requirements, relating to the bank's term lending, or many others. In addition, calibration of the tools is particularly difficult, not least because other committees and authorities have instruments at their disposal which could amplify or dampen the effects of the FPC tools. The FPC needs to take account of monetary policy, 
microprudential policy, competition policy, fiscal and structural policy, and resolution policy, among others. And we need to recognize that macroprudential policy, although generally synergistic with other policies, may from time to time be in conflict with them, and that any tensions need to be recognized and managed carefully. So has the UK got the setup right? I've briefly described the many significant challenges facing macroprudential policy. And clearly it's a difficult thing to get right, but it's vitally important that we do so. So it's fair to ask whether we do have the right setup in the UK. And the IMF has usefully offered guidance with respect to efficient operational organizations of macroprudential policy. And the FPC is following these processes. There's a need to develop capacity to assess systemic risk. There needs to be the selection of a macroprudential toolkit and powers. And tools need to be calibrated. And there needs to be effective communications with the public, hence my presence here today. In addition, there needs to be constant vigilance with respect to monitoring regulatory gaps. And timely action needs to be taken to close them. Similarly, if data gaps exist, we need to be conscious of those, and these, these gaps need to be addressed. In my view, the setup of the macroprudential policy in the UK is right, and now it's about the execution. Now, uh, whilst I mentioned Yogi Berra, uh, a professor of the LSE, who is somebody I have enormous respect for, who I had the good fortune for me to meet once, it was it's Hayek. He pointed out that the failure economists to guide policy more successfully is closely connected with the propensity to imitate as closely as possible the procedures of the brilliantly successful physical sciences, an attempt which may lead to outright error. He described it as scientific and said that unlike the positions that exist in the physical science, in economics and other disciplines that deal with essentially complex phenomena, the aspects of the events to be accounted for about which we can get quantitative data are necessarily limited and may not include the important ones. So, central bankers and their critics need to be constantly reminding themselves that if it was acceptable for Hayek, the 74 Nobel Prize winner, to acknowledge massive uncertainty in economics, then we too need to recognize there are limits to certainty with which we can rely upon central bankers' vision and the consequences of their actions. So what's worrying me? First, that the last crash occurred partly a result of central bank and regulators' failure to appropriately assess risk to the system and the resilience of the systems, and that I now find myself accountable in such a way to make sure this doesn't happen again. Second, the UK's economic position is still fragile. Thirdly, we have a banking system that is still somewhat undercapitalized, although it is on an agreed transition path to a higher level of capitalization. Fourth, global quantitative easing has led to asset price inflation, which may involve some fragility in markets, in particular if there is a sharp snapback in rates. And fifth, our economy is vulnerable to external shocks. And we know there's some fragility in Asia, both with respect to potential growth and the financial system. And of particular concern, our biggest trading partner, Europe, is flirting with deflation. And in this context, there's a vigorous debate taking place as to whether there's a shortfall of demand in the global economy that requires the demand-boosting strategies, which we're currently experiencing, and which maybe the ECB is contemplating, or alternatively whether there's a balance sheet effect which is reducing economic activity and that incurring more debt in the system will not ultimately be a successful recipe for economic growth. And as Yogi might say, or he did say, if you come to a fork in the road, take it. Things remain uncertain, or as economists may say, on the one hand and on the other hand. And certainly there is no doubt that the zero-bound regime within which we operate 
is a clear indication of significant macroeconomic difficulty. And therefore, although presently we must feel that the last year has seen a tremendous move towards more economic stability, it is perfectly conceivable that new shocks or difficulties are just around the corner. And it's worth observing that although we've seen a significant reduction in bond yields of sovereign countries, a 100 basis point reduction, say, in the bond yields of uh, Italy and Spain will reduce their uh, national debt indebtedness in 2019 by about 2%. But a 1% increase or, or effective decrease in GDP will affect their indebtedness by 10%, a multi-factor of five. So with respect to the economy and the financial crisis, I'll turn to Yogi one last time. It ain't over till it's over. But fortunately for you, this talk is. So thanks for uh, this insightful talk. So now there's a chance to ask questions. If anybody wants to start, John. Yeah, sorry. Wait till you, uh, the microphone comes to you, and everybody can hear your question. Thank you very much for the detailed outline of the technical challenges with the macroprudential agenda. I want to have a question related to the start of your presentation. Uncertainty exists all over the place. Your, your, your difficult appearance in front of the Treasury Select Committee, and, I, and I've done the same a few times, and I recognize the difficulties in being there. Now, one possible challenge to the macroprudential agenda is the political reality yes. and the democratic and political acceptance of the agenda, mm -hmm. which, of course, is easy to say post-crisis there is political support, but what will happen as we pass into a more stable environment? And equally importantly, the credibility risk to the Bank of England in case it messes up in some future implementation of the agenda. After all, the macroprudential agenda is much more complicated and challenging than monetary policy. So can you say something about the political dimension to yes. the, or the democratic dimension to this? Yes. I mean, you're right in one sense that um, there's a democratic deficit, which is addressed by requiring the FPC to appear before the Treasury Select Committee. But these powers have been granted to the FPC, and the FPC, therefore can act on its own authority in taking action. And therefore, the scrutiny is, is, is just that, which means that there is a separation of accountability with respect to the need for popularity, for example, versus the singular decision of financial stability. And um, I think the, uh, that is the accountability which certainly I feel and we feel where we may need to take action from time to time that may uh, or may not be popular. But we're doing so because we've formed a judgment that it's necessary for financial stability. One aid we have in that process is cost-benefit analysis, where we have to, if, we, if it's practical, practical, we have to assess what the issues are. And, and at the moment, we now know, we've, um, as a result of financial instability, that trillions of dollars has been lost in economic activities, uh, scores of millions of people are unemployed. 
But there's obviously a risk as we move further away from the crash, experience of the crash, that when the FPC takes action, if it does take action, particularly counter-cyclical action, that it won't be popular. And um, so I suspect that would be a bigger risk for future generations of FPC members when they may fall into the trap that Bernanke fell into in thinking that 20 years of stability meant that uh, volatility had been slain. Oh, hello. So my question relates to a topic which I don't think gets nearly as much attention as it should, and that topic is uh, rehypothecation, which is the uh, process by which uh, banks can legally take collateral that's been pledged to them and then gets repledged for their own proprietary financing uh, in interbank credit markets. And one thing that, uh, I mean, you talked in your presentation about how, I mean, Hayek said that we might not be collecting on, quantitatively collecting data on some of the most important things. And one thing that I was kind of pleased with was uh, about a, a little over a year ago, mm. the Bank of England did actually start collecting data on reapplication, although it's not public. And they're the only uh, institution anywhere in the world I know that actually is collecting data. I was just wondering um, what form this data takes and how the Financial Policy Committee is using it and how that's playing into your analysis. Well, actually, I think there's also a focus in the U.S. And I think the, uh, the whole issue of rehypothecation and together with the repo market is, is an issue of, of major concern and because of the um, uh, because of the risk to liquidity in the system and, and, and obviously those linkages um, in terms of the form of the data um, we, we get um, uh, really briefed by the parts of the Bank of England that um, uh, accumulate this data with respect to stresses or issues within the system. Um, but the issue raised is one that, that we are focusing on, and in fact, multinational entities are focusing on in terms of um, uh, something that needs to be sorted out as the system gets uh, better organized, financial system gets better organized. Mike? Uh, so my question is uh, partly inspired by Yogi Berra, because he, he had another quote which he didn't use, which was uh, that, uh, in theory, there's no difference between practice and uh, theory, but in <laughs> practice there is. Yes. Um, uh, that's come from, I mean, a lot of the developments we saw in monetary policy came after the development of a lot of theory and a lot of thinking about institutions and designs mm. and how policies work. Macroprudential is a, is, a, is a set of policies which have basically come as quickly as the crisis, in a mm. sense. They're a reaction to the crisis, and there's not that much. How much do you feel there's a sort of need for more academic theorizing and thinking about uh, macroprudential and some of the links that you, you, you highlighted in some of your figures about how it links with monetary policy and other aspects of the economy, and how much do you think you know, there's a, a need for the Bank of England and other central banks to drive forward that agenda? Uh, I mean, one of the reasons I focused on what Hayek was saying was because it's less valuable to me, for example, if uh, there are models which don't recognize reality, which, for example, just look at what's going on in one economy without taking account of all the global linkages. And I think that if... So I would certainly welcome more research that takes account of uh, global macro and the capital flows between countries as they actually are 
albeit that those are hard to analyze. And um, I think that's a, a newer area, and I think some of the reason it's a newer area is probably because the U.S. has such a large uh, domestic economy that they feel in, only felt really in the last 20 years or so they really needed to count, take account of some of the more international aspects. And the models that they could pr- produce as economists to ones were easier simplifying, simplifying the system. So I'm certainly hopeful and optimistic that there will be um, economic work and economic analysis that will help us. But my point from recognizing that we're not in economics where you, need to, where you can be with physics or chemistry, it's recognized there are limitations on that. And certainly um, my experience in the markets uh, is uh, that notwithstanding all the analysis of the past, the future will remain very unpredictable. But it's clearly better that economists focus on models that represent the linkages that we now have between markets. And I think that that, that will be a very encouraging development for those as involved in macro policy. In the back. Yeah, my question is, um, how do you compare somebody who has had the bailiffs round to remove their property uh, because they haven't paid a debt? Uh, in relation to quantitative easing. Yeah. So, for example, I got a letter from tax uh, people. I'd, I'd paid my national insurance into my into the wrong tax department, and um, I, I got a letter saying that we can come and enter your home and uh, sell off property if you, have, if you don't pay this debt up. I mean, it was just a mistake. But it seems to me that quantitative easing, it's, it's rather like in a sense that I could just open the door to the bailiffs and say, well, here's some imaginary money that I've just um, written out and um, take that, um, and they say, oh, that's fine, uh, I'll do that. So that, that's the sort of... Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, you, you're, you're addressing uh, a subject of the moment, which, which is why I'd encourage you to look at this House of Debt by Main and Sefi, who disagree with the whole focus of U.S. response, which, which didn't address the effects on the broader economy from forgiving household mortgage debt that was in arrears. Their, their argument, as I understand it, is, is that actually if um, there had been far more debt forgiveness for people who had difficulties with their mortgages, then we would have had a much greater level of economic activity because the, consumption, uh, the reduction in consumption effect was very significant on the people who suffered as a result of the housing crisis. And, um, and so, indeed, that, um, that would have been a better response to create a better economic environment by helping people who had problems with their homes rather than focus on the banks and quantitative easing to stimulate demand. And they criticised some of the mathematics that Geithner had with respect to the consumer response because he'd focused, maybe he'd focused on the wrong cohorts in terms of the crisis. So I'd encourage you to, to – I think your, your point is well taken. It is certainly a topic of debate right now. Go 
Thank you. <coughs> Thank you. Welcome to the uh, LSE. It's great to see you. Uh, a senior financial policymaker quoting LSE professors. Uh, my, my question was about the staff and culture that you found in your time uh, at the bank. As you know, the LSE um, has sent a lot of uh, um, talent over to the bank from governors and deputy governors down to some of the most junior analysts. How have you found the staff of the bank in contrast to the people that you've worked with in your private sector roles. And a slightly more specific question, the banks had 20 years to get to grips with monetary policy, only a short time to get to grips with financial policy. Have, how have you found the staff's willingness to uh, adjust to that? And do you have a sense that it is as prestigious to work on uh, financial policy matters as it is to work on monetary policy matters? Thank you. I, I, I joined the FPC <clears throat> virtually at the time a new governor came in. And certainly it, it seems very clear that the Bank of England is, is shaped by the character and the priorities of the governor. And the prior governor um, had uh, a very strong um, economics background and had spent a lot of focus on um, monetary policy. And I certainly, whether it's correct or not, felt... Uh, a sense that up to that point of the crisis there hadn't been a sufficient focus on the side of the bank that was dealing with financial stability. Um, and I think the consciousness in the bank that um, maybe it could have done things better um, and that there was now change with the PRA coming into the bank and that there was a new broom with the governor um, has changed things significantly. Um, and so I find um, that there's a strong um, academic backbone um, in, the, in the bank. I find that the attitude is extremely positive. There's obviously a risk with the scale of the PRA coming into the Bank of England um, that there also needs to be a huge priority focus on the microprudential regulation of systemically important institutions. And so there is certainly going to be a risk that uh, some of the resources are spread relatively thinly, particularly the senior resources. Um, um, but I've, I think that the only thing that's lacking to my mind is a real understanding of what it feels like to take risk in markets and to be wrong. And so I would encourage you know, any economists to invest and put their money where their mouth is, in the markets, because that may um, temper their feeling that the models are necessarily good predictions of the future. And um, uh, anyway, that's, that's, that, that might help. Any other question? Um, I have one question. Um, so I grew uh, up academically in the 80s, and this was uh, when you know, we started to get a new view about monetary policy. Mm. Right before... Right, we thought is that monetary policy could do a lot, and, uh, and in the eighties we said you, know, you should be a little bit more modest, and we thought it's very important that monetary policy is very transparent, mm -hmm. that we understand you know what the central bank is going to do, and um, when I you know listened to your talk and I saw your slides, I mean I realized sort of you know how complex right your task now is, and. I worry a lot is, is that central bank policy, not just in the UK but all over, is going to be very unpredictable. 
because now you've got all these extra tools. Mm. And so do you guys worry about that? Is that you guys seem a bit intransparent now? Is that, I mean, it's not just right how we're going to get rid of quantitative easing, the tapering off, but you know, the tools you're going to use. We used to make fun. It cannot be that difficult you know, to be at a central bank because you've got to decide to push bank rate up 25 basis points and yes. keep it constant. Yes. And now it's you know, a completely different game. Yes, it is. It is. Um, the, uh, you're Dutch, so I'll give you the Dutch answer, which is short and sharp. Yes. <laughs> um, a slightly more uh, nuanced answer is, um, you know, monetary policy, particularly in, in, in the zero rate bound, there are limits, although we'll see whether the ECB is going to be creative. Quantitative easing, forward guidance. And we still have an economy... Uh, certainly on the continent, that is, for practical purposes, flatlining. Or, you know, and f- so there's no doubt that there are tools, the macro, macro tools are an adjunct, to mon- potentially adjunct to monetary policy in, with respect to the macro economy, not just with respect to purely financial stability. Um, our tools are very much focused at the moment on the, um, through financial institutions. And um, so there are many other areas that, that we're unable to address. You know, what supply side, what's going to supply side reforms, what's going to encourage investment. Uh, but I do, I do worry about about uh, the complexity of what we face and the unintended consequences of certain actions. Uh, uh, so, uh, and that we also in the political crossfire, of housing being the first first example of that. Um, uh, but that's also why. I'm not in, absolutely in favour of transparency. I think we need to also have the ability as a, as, a, as a committee to spend a lot of time deliberating in private around macro tools, very different from just voting for interest rates. Um, uh, because the, we may also need to bring subjective elements to bear where there is certainty with respect to the consequences but uncertainty with respect to the benefits. And... Um, uh, so I think the answer is yes. It is. It's a, it's a more difficult position. Well. Thank you uh, for your talk. Um, I just wanted to touch on a couple of things, um, sort of around, your, like you're saying, the enormity uh, and the difficulty in sort of regulating for this. And do you think it's perhaps time that central banks, uh, both in, in, U- in UK, Europe, uh, and worldwide just accept that they can't do it anymore, that actually, do you know what, we can't predict the future any more than I can predict tomorrow. Um, and that, you know, the effort... I actually, I actually work in the uh, offshore financial uh, space, um, and I think, you know, the FCA is, is great domestically uh, and, you know, does have a, some effect internationally, but really it's just a piece of paper uh, trying to stop a, a truck, um, you know, in, in terms of looking at the amounts of money that can be put in. And I think... Uh, if I can ask you, Richard, what my, my, my point is, is it's just so difficult now. You've got more countries coming into the game, you know, the BRICS, the PIGS, etc. You know, more countries rising up, um, becoming economically powerful. It's becoming e- even harder, um, not easier. Uh, and I think we don't, people aren't talking about that. People don't say, oh, you know, it's becoming really, really hard because if India does this and, and Brazil does that, the consequence on us as an economy is this. Um, I'm interested in your view on that. Well, you know, the, 
We need to be careful that we're not rearranging deck chairs and nobody's worried about where the, which direction the boat's going. The, the, but nevertheless, there are actions that can be taken that have consequences. We've seen, for example, good evidence um, in places like South Korea, Hong Kong, Singapore, we'll see in Sweden, the bank that central banks can take actions to affect housing, for example. So some of the measures we can take can be targeted, and we can probably expect some responses. With respect to the bigger picture of financial risk, I, I agree, which is why, to me, the issue is resilience, true resilience of the system, with un- the unpredictability of shocks. Although I do believe that e- 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 economics will move, an economic analysis will move to help us with respect to looking and analysing some of the linkages that means there needs to be coordination. And there is and will be coordination. Basel was the beginning of coordination. The two big-to-fail processes are going to be globally coordinated. And actually, it's a good thing, to some extent, that there's a lack of coordination. If there was one global central bank, there could be one global catastrophe. When you have different central banks applying different actions, you've, for example, got certain greater resilience in, in Australia, Canada. You had counter-cyclical operations having taken place in Spain. We didn't have one central bank. And so to some extent, a market in different actions at different times can also be helpful. And that complexity can also serve to help you. Uh, you know, a singular focus with a singular point of view and a singular sense of certainty has its own bigger risk. Hence, it was the U.S. shock that rippled through the system, one big market under one, one big action, with no one taking a view there was too much leverage in the housing system. Anyway, John, another question? Hello. Um, I think there's Hello. a lot of pressure from the FPC to deliver. Uh, you said that the, it would take a while for the implementation of addressing the risk, especially housing. But um, at the last minute, uh, Governor Carney has mentioned that monetary policy will be the last line of defense. So my interpretation is that he wants he is encouraging the FPC to deliver first, although there's no you know, actual proof that macroprudential will work in lowering the housing prices in the UK, especially in London. But um, I was wondering, because it seems like you're still dovish in terms of the, you know, by saying that the UK is still very fragile, but in terms of the actual implementation, it seems like you were stretching that timeline ahead, not imminently. So in that sense, how do you try to manage the timing in terms of working out the issues that needs versus... Because I think the past few decades, using one lever of monetary policy works, but post-Lehman shock, I think using just one lever doesn't work anymore. And I think... Macroprudential plus monetary policy is the way, but in terms of the timing, the schedule, is it macroprudential first, second, third, and after a few trials it didn't work, but then monetary policy at the, the last line of defense? Sorry. Well, I'd rather not talk about first and last. And I think when you say deliver, you mean act. Is that right? And, and because that's 
one of the issues is we, you can act, but the delivery is whether we see whether where the consequences are as we expect them to be. The, the monetary policy is a very blunt instrument, and central bankers are now focusing on the fact that whereas they felt there may be interest rate management, let's say in decades past, was fine-tuning and very, with a lot of precision. In fact, it had all kinds of unintended consequences, and it is indeed a blunt instrument. The FPC can be more targeted, hence the actions that are taken um, uh, to address property markets. We're using macroprudential measures, as I just mentioned, in places like South Korea, Singapore, Hong Kong, and Sweden. When we act, we have to take account of the country as a whole. We, we, we aren't responsible for house prices. We're responsible for financial stability. We already have taken some action with respect to uh, requiring affordability tests so that when people now have mortgages, they have to take account of uh, uh, sensitivities on interest rates to make sure that the actual mortgages themselves will be affordable could, should higher interest rates emerge. Um, but certainly the tools we have are, can be more precisely targeted at housing than the interest rate, which obviously affects the economy as a whole. Um, so, and I think that's behind uh, what the governor said. Now, with respect to when and if we act, as I said, the approach is, is that we should be graduated. We meet quarterly. We're going to meet in June. So I'll see when we, sit, when we all sit down how the others feel about it, and we'll look at the data, we'll look at the facts, we'll look at the nation as a whole, because it's sometimes too easy to be, to be preoccupied just in the consequence of, let's say, foreign buying coming into London, as against some of the issues affecting uh, the broader economy and uh, uh, the UK as a whole. I have a quick follow-up question on one of the questions you got earlier from the back on the input of QE. And, of course, QE and monetary policy does redistribute wealth in society. Mm. And a couple of months ago, we had the governor of the Bank of Japan sitting right where you sit, and he said that he was very concerned with the wealth and income inequality impact on monetary policy and QE. But he also added this is more of a concern to the UK, for the UK than Japan. So the, are there, in your views, any distributional concerns on the use of monetary policy and macroprudential policy? Or is that an issue that is not on the table for the committee? Um, the short answer is it isn't on the table for the committee. That's, if you like, a political issue. The issue we, we focus on, um, it to some extent, could be secondary effects. So, for example, are there different groups whose consumer behavior may be affected more than others? And therefore, what are the effect for financial stability in terms of what's going on as a result of monetary policy? But we don't focus on the political issue about the distribution effects, albeit that they are quite profound. Good uh, point to uh, to end this evening's event. So uh, let me uh, let, let us thank our speaker one more time for telling us you know, about his work and uh, the difficult task that you're facing. Thanks. Thank you.